Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 45, The Mediterranean on Fire, Sicily. Last time, we covered the volatile Spanish theater and the rise of Scipio. Today, we sail east to return to our old stomping grounds, Sicily. Unlike Spain, Sicily had been a relatively quiet front during the first half of the Second Punic War. Although Sempronius Longus, the loser of Trebia, had previously been dispatched to Lilibaeum to prepare an invasion of North Africa in the opening months of the war, Hannibal's descent into Italy forced his recall. Nevertheless, from 218 to 216 BC, Rome strengthened the garrison on Sicily to two legions and a substantial navy. Following Cannae, the Senate also ordered the Roman survivors to Sicily to atone for their failure. This substantial investment of resources and manpower into Sicily, at a time when Rome herself was threatened in Italy, demonstrates the value the Senate placed on holding Rome's first province outside of Italy. With a strong base at Lilibaeum within striking distance of mainland Carthage, Rome's navy could raid along Carthage's coastline with impunity while simultaneously blocking overseas reinforcements to Hannibal. Sicily's greatest Greek city, Syracuse, had also remained quiet for nearly half a century. Gone were the days when the Greeks had vied with Carthage for control of the island. A brief foray against Rome and some indecisive skirmishing was all the active fighting Syracuse would see in the First Punic War. Under the reign of Hiero II, a former Pyrrhic general who rose to power in the wake of Pyrrhus's departure, Syracuse would then enjoy an uneventful 50 years of peace as a Roman ally. The situation changed dramatically in the final months of 216 BC. Sensing that his end was near, the 90-year-old Hiero desired to leave Syracuse a free city, passing over his 15-year-old grandson and natural heir, Hieronymus, due to the boy's age and immaturity. Hiero's daughters, however, opposed this plan vehemently, wishing to use Hieronymus as a puppet ruler for their own purposes. Despite his misgivings, Hiero at last succumbed to, in the words of Livy, his daughter's, quote, feminine blandishments, end quote, and willed his kingdom to Hieronymus. Unwilling to leave everything to chance, Hiero did appoint a grand total of 15 guardians to guide his grandson in the ways of kingship. On his deathbed, he begged them all to remain loyal to the alliance with Rome and pursue the virtuous and wise precepts which made his reign so prosperous. In the world's most predictable estate planning disaster, things began to unravel before Hiero's body was even cold. Livy gives a sensational description of how things changed overnight in Syracuse. Quote, it was as if Hieronymus was deliberately vicious in order to make people wish his grandfather back again. For many years, the Syracusans had known Hiero and his son Gelo, dressed like themselves and distinguished by no outward mark of royalty. But now they saw the royal purple, the diadem, the armed attendants, even, at times, the young king driving from the palace behind four white horses, like Dionysius the tyrant of old. End quote. Although the notorious Agathocles had been the first to take the crown in 304 BC, the idea of monarchy still sat somewhat uncomfortably with the Syracusans, 
the lack of ostentation and regalia, had been something that had endeared Hiero to his subjects, but Hieronymus's forsaking of this nicety would be the least of his failings. Livy continues his narrative by giving a damning, if somewhat generalized, list of the young man's sins. Quote, All this outward show of regal dress and appurtenances was soon followed by behavior to match, a contemptuous treatment of everybody, a haughty refusal to listen to advice or complaint, insolent speech, denial of access not only to outsiders, but even to his former guardians, strange forms of lust, and inhuman cruelty. End quote. Behind closed doors, a brief but vicious power struggle broke out between the guardians Hiro had appointed. By the time the first round of exiles and suicides had passed, only three remained, Hieronymus's uncles, Adronodorus and Zopis, and a man called Thraso. For all his ambition, Thraso at least remained staunchly pro-Roman, while the uncles favored the resurgent Carthaginians. Thraso fell soon after being falsely accused of participating in a palace coup, and with his fall snapped the last link holding together the late Hiero's cherished alliance with Rome. To his joy and surprise, Hannibal received envoys from Hieronymus's court, and willingly sent a delegation in return headed by two brothers, Hippocrates and Epicides who were destined to fight one of the ancient world's most confusing insurgency campaigns against Rome in the coming months. Curiously, Livy notes that, despite their Greek names, both these men had been born in Carthage to a Greek exile who had married a Carthaginian woman, offering a unique insight into the intermarriage practices among the Carthaginians. With both sides eager to become friends, Hannibal and Syracuse concluded an alliance, and Hippocrates and Epicides stayed on to advise Hieronymus at his court. When Roman envoys arrived to renew the old alliance with Syracuse, they immediately noticed the marked change in relations. Hieronymus dismissed them out of hand, ironically asking how they fared at the Battle of Cannae, since he could scarce believe the tale Hannibal's representatives had told him. Quote, For I should like to know the truth, as only so I can determine which side to base my hopes upon. End quote. With stern restraint, the Romans advised they would come visit him again when he had learned to take embassies seriously, before leaving a parting warning to consider carefully what he was doing. Hieronymus, however, was beyond all restraint. For the first time in decades, Syracuse was at war it would be her last as a free people. Infatuated with the idea of surpassing not only his predecessor, Hiero, but also his maternal grandfather, the legendary Pyrrhus of Epirus, Hieronymus demanded that once the Romans had been driven out of Sicily, the Carthaginians would hand the whole island over to his beneficent rule. Quickly fathoming the emptiness of the youth, the Carthaginian diplomats did not even bother to argue the point. As fortune would have it, neither the Romans nor the Carthaginians would have to deal with Hieronymus much longer. After dispatching the Carthaginian brothers with a force of men 4,000 strong to attack Roman allied towns, Hieronymus marched to Leontini with 15,000 men. Here, his doom caught up with him. While passing down a narrow street, one of the king's bodyguards bent down to loosen his shoe, blocking the crowd behind. 
At this signal, a group of assassins sprang from an abandoned house and cut down the helpless Hieronymus, leaving him to die in the street. The soldiers thought so little of their late leader that they allowed his body to remain unburied and the king's murderers were suffered to go unpunished. Despite the nonchalance of the soldiery, Hieronymus's death sent shockwaves through Syracuse. With no legitimate heir available, the city descended into its habitual rounds of chaos. Factions broke out at once between those who favored a return to democracy and the monarchists who rallied around Hiero's uncle, Adronodorus, who fortified the Ortigia and other strong points in the city. His wife, Demerata, daughter of Hiero and a princess in her own right, implored him to seize the throne for himself, citing the proverb, quote, there is only one way for a monarch to leave his throne, not on horseback, but drag feet first. End quote. Disregarding her advice, Adronodorus made peace with the Democracy Party, and as a reward, was elected to serve on their council, along with the men who had assassinated the boy king. A further wild card was thrown into this seething political struggle when Hannibal's lieutenants, Hippocrates and Epicides, returned to the city. After unsuccessfully trying to conceal the news of the king's death by the extreme measure of killing the messenger who brought it to them, the two generals found themselves deserted by their army. Coming before the newly elected council, they now requested an escort to return them to Hannibal's army. Although the council gladly granted this request, no steps were taken to ensure it was carried out, leaving the men very much at large in the city. Nor were, they, nor were they idle in Hannibal's service. Pulling aside the soldiers and common people who flocked to the city, they whispered rumors that the council did not desire Syracuse's freedom, but rather to profit by handing the city over to the Romans. Meanwhile, Adronodorus had finally yielded to his wife's demands that he make a bid for supreme power. Unfortunately for him, one of his confidants, an actor named Aristo, betrayed his secret to the council, which led to his assassination in the very chamber of the government. When news of Adranodorus's plot and Damarada's role in it reached the mob, they demanded the blood of the entire royal family to eliminate the threat of coup forever. More men volunteered to serve as the assassins, and soon nothing remained of the beloved Hiero's family. Livy recounts a particularly pathetic scene where Heraclea, another daughter of Hiero, fled to a shrine with her two young daughters and begged the assassins to spare the children's lives at least. Hardened by their commission, the men cut the mother's throat and chased the fleeing girls, who after a desperate struggle succumbed to their wounds. To add a grim irony to their fate, an order arrived just moments too late from the council to spare Heraclea's children, since the crowd had repented of its haste. Angered by this botched assassination, the mob demanded to be allowed to elect two new men to the council. Fearful of further violence, the council agreed, and to everyone's surprise, the foreigners Hippocrates and Epicides were elected. Now in a position of authority, they continued fanning the flames of rebellion. Even when the council ordered them out of the city on a military expedition to Leontini, they raided Roman territory and did everything in their power to sour relations between Syracuse and Rome. A series of confused actions followed 
where the Romans and then the Syracusans sought to capture the rogue Carthaginians. But the brothers lived a charmed life, escaping the sack of Leontini by the Romans after stirring up that city to revolt, and then using trickery to convince the Syracusan army sent to arrest them to instead join their side. As presented by Livy, the whole story would read like a comedy of errors, if not for the violence left in the brothers' wake. To illustrate just one example of the jumbled state of Sicilian affairs, when the brothers approached the Syracusan army to beg for mercy, they met first with 600 Cretans, whom they had not only commanded previously in Hieronymus's army, but who also owed their freedom to Hannibal's liberality in freeing them after the Battle of Lake Trasimene. Out of gratitude to the brothers and Hannibal, these Cretans immediately went over to the Carthaginians and helped turn the entire army to their side. Reinforced by the mutinous Syracusans, as well as other mercenaries who now defected to their standard, the Carthaginian brothers marched on Syracuse herself. In a morbid way, it is fitting that a city which had spent nearly 400 years in constant political turmoil should pass its final hours as a free state in a lengthy, violent debate in the council chambers on what to do. It was all a pointless exercise, though. The magistrates had long ago lost the city to the mob, and Hippocrates and Epicides entered through the gates as conquering heroes. The magistrates were killed or driven out, and Hannibal's audacious lieutenants achieved what Carthage had failed to do for nearly 200 years, capture Syracuse. The city was immediately put on a war footing. Slaves were freed, criminals released from prison, and the two brothers took control of Syracuse's generals defying Rome to war. And Rome would answer. In 214 BC, one of her most preeminent warrior generals arrived on the island, Marcus Claudius Marcellus. According to the Greek historian Posidinus, if Fabius was the shield of Rome, Marcellus was her sword. In his third consulship by the time of the Sicilian campaign, Marcellus already possessed an impressive resume of military service. In that warlike generation of Romans, whom Plutarch describes as, quote, from their youth unto their utmost age, appointed the laborious wars to wage, end quote. Marcellus had distinguished himself as a young man in the First Punic War, as well as the Gallic Wars in northern Italy. He sealed his military legend by achieving the preeminent Roman feat of arms, the Spoila Optima. This required a Roman general to kill his opposing commander in single combat, strip the body Homeric style of the arms and armor, and return the trophies to the temple of Jupiter Feratrius. Having made his vow to Jupiter, Marcellus killed a gigantic king of the Gallic Gassetti in single combat, carrying the trophy himself on an oak pole through Rome to the temple. He was the third and last man to achieve that feat, the other two being the city's legendary founder Romulus and Aulus Cornelius Cossus. Eleven years later, Marcellus arrived to bring order to the chaos in Sicily. When negotiations failed due to the machinations of Hippocrates and Epicides, Marcellus marched on Syracuse herself. Fresh from the storming of Leontini, Marcellus ordered an immediate assault from land and sea. Here, however, the Romans ran up against one of the most brilliant minds of the ancient world. 
Archimedes is a name which needs no introduction. A genius mathematician, geometrist, astronomer, physicist, and engineer. He is perhaps best known for the anecdotal story of how he deduced the volume of a golden crown by immersing it in water. As related by the Roman author Vitruvius, King Cairo once commissioned his near kinsman, Archimedes, with discovering whether a golden crown had been debased with silver by the goldsmith. Observing that when submerged in a bath, he displaced an amount of water equal to the volume of his body, Archimedes realized he could use the same method to determine the volume of the crown. Then, by dividing the mass by said volume, he could find the density of the crown and compare that to the density of an amount of solid gold. Using this method, Archimedes determined that the crown had been mixed with silver by the dishonest goldsmith. According to legend, Archimedes was so thrilled with discovering what is now known as Archimedes' principle that he ran through the streets stark naked, crying, Eureka! According to Plutarch, Archimedes' total neglect of decorum was not confined to this incident. His love of his work was so great that he, quote, forgot his food and neglected his person, to that degree that when he was occasionally carried by absolute violence to bathe or have his body anointed, he used to trace geometrical figures in the ashes of the fire and diagrams in the oil on his body, being in a state of entire preoccupation and in the truest sense divine possession with his love and delight in science. End quote. Impressed by his kinsman's genius, Hiero commissioned Archimedes to prepare inventions for the benefit of the city. Now the old king's foresight would aid Syracuse in resisting the Roman war machine. As Marcellus's quinquereme sailed into the harbor, they were met with giant cranes which swooped down upon them with iron hooks. Sinking into the ship's planks, the cranes would then lift the ship up from the water before sending it plummeting down below, capsizing or shattering the hull to the horror of the crews. Siege engines fired massive stones which crushed those which avoided the hooks, and large mirrors allegedly concentrated the sun's rays to a point that they caught the ships on fire, although the latter claim has been disputed by modern experiments. Baffled by these novel machines, Marcellus drew off his ships. The soldiers on the ground fared little better. As they toiled up the rocky slopes towards the walls, Various catapults and other engines fired a near-continuous barrage of missiles both near and far. These fell so thickly from above that the men did not know where to place their shields to protect themselves. In subsequent assaults, the Romans tried to sneak up next to the walls by stealth, but Archimedes' machines hurled missiles from what seemed to be the very stones themselves. At length, the legionaries became so battered that Quote, if they did but see a little rope or a piece of wood from the wall, they instantly cried out, There it is again! And they turned their backs and fled. End quote. Faced with this mechanical monstrosity, Marcellus at last relinquished his assaults and ordered Syracuse blockaded. Meanwhile, he vented his frustration on the surrounding cities which had joined the revolt, spurred on by Hippocrates and a newly arrived Carthaginian army under Himilco. Despite initial successes at Agrigentum, the allied armies made little headway against Marcellus, 
who eventually succeeded in surprising Hippocrates and forcing Himilco to retire. Returning to Syracuse in early 212 BC, Marcellus decided to try stealth rather than force to take the city. Having captured an important Syracusan officer, he opened negotiations with the Syracusans regarding the prisoner's ransom. While near the walls to discuss terms, Marcellus noticed a tower that was lightly defended and calculated the height of ladders which would be needed to surmount them. A little while later, the Syracusans celebrated a festival to the goddess Artemis and got roaring drunk. Seizing the moment, Marcellus led his men through the tower and into the city. Blowing trumpets as they went, the Romans caused terror among the stupefied citizens, who offered little resistance. With uncharacteristic restraint for a conquering Roman, Marcellus allegedly wept over the ancient beauty of Syracuse and ordered that the citizens be treated leniently. Nonetheless, he plundered the city of all its magnificent artwork, sculptures, and wealth to enrich Rome. According to Plutarch, quote, Before this, Rome neither had nor had seen any of those fine and exquisite rarities, nor was any pleasure taken in graceful and elegant pieces of workmanship, whence Marcellus was more popular with the people in general, because he had adorned the city with beautiful objects that had all the charms of Grecian grace and symmetry. End quote. The treasures were so great that Livy claims that the sum rivaled that taken at Carthage years later. One treasure that would be denied Marcellus was Archimedes. Despite strict orders to spare the Greek genius, a soldier, running up on Archimedes preoccupied with one of his math problems using circles drawn in the dirt, ordered him at sword point to come to Marcellus. When Archimedes replied that he would not do so until he had worked out his equation, the enraged legionary cut him down. True to form, Archimedes' last words were allegedly, quote, Do not disturb my circles. End quote. The fighting would continue in the suburbs and about the strongholds of the Ortigia for months following the taking of the outer walls. Disease would also make its presence felt, and the Carthaginians lost both the guerrilla leader Hippocrates as well as Himilco and a large number of common soldiers to illness, rendering the expeditionary force completely ineffective. Among the Syracusans, Further fratricide broke out when the mercenaries and Roman deserters fell on the citizens for fear that they would hand them over to the enemy. Ironically, it was a Spanish mercenary who finally betrayed the Ortigia into Roman hands. With the fall of their great island fortress, the Syracusans at last surrendered, asking the Romans to remember the good old King Hiero who had been their friend. Marcellus quipped that the services of Hiero over 50 years did not outweigh the many disservices of the current regime over the past few years, but he granted terms nonetheless. Defeated, Epicedes withdrew to Agrigentum before finally being driven from Sicily altogether by the triumphant Romans. All that remained for the latter was to mop up local resistance among the Sicilian cities. Marcellus returned to Rome in glorious victory, although an actual triumph was denied him due to the political machinations of his enemies. With the successful conclusion of the siege, Syracuse's sun had set at last. She would remain a Roman city for the next 600 years, 
a mere shadow of what she had once been under the likes of Dionysius, Agathocles, and Hiero. Her plundered treasures would enrich and beautify the imperial capital which had conquered her, and this first great influx of Greek culture would have important and lasting ramifications in the years to come. Yet her fate would be mild compared to that which awaited her fellow Greek cities on mainland Magna Graecia. Next time, we return to the beleaguered Hannibal in Italy. Until then, take care and read more history.